Well, happy Easter. <laughs> Great to see you. Hope you've come all chocolated up and uh, ready to go. Uh, why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for uh, the wonder, the power of the cross and of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, please, as we think about what that means now and what you are doing in this world and where our eyes should be focused, that you'll help us to focus in the right place on him and on our future with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know if you like optical illusions. Uh, you know, word, they're not word puzzles, are they? There are uh, pictures. Uh, I grew up with Cole's Funny Picture Book, which I think is maybe 100 years old, but my parents had a copy and brought it out all the time. There were like pictures hidden within pictures so it looked like a picture of forest, but really there was a man who was the trees and so on. But there's all sorts of uh, ones that are designed to trick your brain, uh, like this one, if I can get it working. No? Dave? <laughs> when I touch technology, it doesn't work. There, there you go. There's two yellow lines on there uh, at the top and at the bottom. Uh, which one's longer? The top, the top yellow line or the bottom one? The top one? Well, actually, they're both exactly the same length. There you go. But you knew that was the answer because you've seen these kind of puzzles before. Well, what about this one here? Uh, you want me to try? Oh, there you go. There's a grey line in the middle that... Uh, which end is darker, the left or the right? Actually, they're exactly the same tone all the way across... The colour of the background tricks your brain into seeing it different uh, at the two ends, but it's exactly the same. Or there's classic ones. You've probably seen this one before. Uh, put your hand up if you can see a vase. There you go. Put your hand up if you see two faces looking at each other. There you go. And put your hand up if you didn't realise it was both at once. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, I was discussing with a mate uh, a while ago how Easter is a bit of an optical illusion. Uh, in lots of different ways. Good Friday. Uh, it appears to many to be morbid and depressing. It's about a grisly death. Uh, it seems like the ultimate expression of failure and defeat, and yet it's not a failure at all. It's the victory of God. It's the victory of God over sin, the victory of God over the devil, the victory of God over our sinful natures. Our salvation was won for us that day on the cross, but we were talking about that on Friday where Jesus, with absolute self-determination, went to his death. He could have stopped it as his friends tried to persuade him not to, but to the cross he went to lay down his life for you and for me, that he might buy us, win us, save us, as he paid for our sins there that we could not pay for ourselves. And on the other hand, there's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. Um, to our community, to us, it might seem like the fun part of Easter uh, it's full of joy and happiness, there's new life and there's Easter eggs uh, and that's always going to wonderful. In fact, this year, Alison forgot that she determined that every Easter Sunday, uh, breakfast is an, Jesus is a live cake, uh, <laughs> but she forgot to bake it yesterday, so, <laughs> so we had to have Easter eggs for breakfast instead. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but you get to Easter Sunday and, and it feels light and fluffy and full of joy, it's the fun part of Easter after all that morbidity on Friday. Uh, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is actually one of the scariest things of all. 
The women who met Jesus were scared out of their wits. It wasn't just, hey, great, high five, you're back. It wasn't. No, they're petrified. They think it's a ghost. They think it's the gun. It's like it's anything but because they, they can't believe it. Death has been destroyed. Here is the one who wields the power of life and death and he just shakes it off. Is he a ghost? Can this be real? It scares them out of their wits. But it should scare us too because it's the final nail in the coffin for every pretension of religion and every piece of guesswork. Um, Jesus is back from the dead. It's the great wrecking ball which destroys all idolatry and worship of whatever you wanted to think about God. You cannot think whatever you like. You cannot have whatever you want in terms of religion or spirituality when a man conquers death, when this man conquers death. And it's even scarier because of what the resurrection of Jesus means. As Paul went to the great city of Athens in the first century, he saw the idolatry and he preached to them about judgment day that was coming and he says this in Acts chapter 17. He said, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is not, you know, a proof that Jesus is God. He is, uh, but he's, because he's God, that's why he's raised. Not that he's raised, that's why he's God, no. Uh, and it's not just, you know, this joyful thing and reunion of families in the first century and friends. No, it's God's evidence that judgment day is happening. God has given proof that the judgment is happening by raising the man who is appointed to be the judge from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is God declaring that judgment it's on, that it's happening. Jesus is judge of all. He is the risen king. He is the Lord of glory. He is the judge of all. And that's what his resurrection from the tomb is declaring. That is, the optical illusion of Easter is that it appears to be about the past. It's about things that happened to some guy long ago. But the reality is that Easter is about the future. The resurrection of Jesus is about the future. It's about the ultimate future, heaven and hell. That Jesus' resurrection is the signal that we'll all be raised and that we'll live for eternity, either in joy and glory and bliss with him in his heavenly kingdom, sharing in the, the glory and the joy of God himself, or that we'll be eternally condemned to the darkest depths of despair in hell. And it's Jesus alive again who determines where you go. He is the judge. He determines your future. So it's incredibly important to know where you stand with him because where you stand with him establishes whether in fact you are or are not a citizen of his heaven. And in Philippians chapter 3, which is our first reading, Paul writes to people who know for certain that they are citizens of heaven. It's all about citizenship, that chapter, and we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at that. And he says, For the one who's understood, the one who's accepted, the one who's trusted Jesus' death on the cross, they are forgiven. They are justified in God's sight. That is, they're, they're declared innocent, even though they're guilty. God's acquitted them. Uh, they've been let off and they've become citizens of heaven. 
a person whose passport is stamped, who's got the visa arranged, a person whose home in heaven is assured and they know they're away on holidays at the moment here. They're currently away from their true home. We're just tourists here in this world and they're looking forward to that resurrection where they will join the resurrected Lord in glory. And he says, if you're a citizen of heaven, what we are to be like is to reflect the fact that that is our true home and not this one here. That, that's where our citizenship is to be located. Mind you, he says, everywhere around about us are people who have their citizenship on earth. That is the citizenship we used to have. And Paul is at pains to remind the Philippian church and to remind us that they used to be that, but now there's something else. There's a distinction. It's deep, it's dramatic, and it's serious when you become a citizen of heaven. As, but before we come and look at the heavenly citizen, he compares it to earthly citizenship. And he says that earthly citizenship, the way we used to be, um, is a mindset. He says their mind is on earthly things, right? Their mind is in this world. It's the essential part of a culture that it's, it's in your mind. It's, it's a worldview, a way of thinking about people and looking at them and thinking about relationships. Or, or, you know, what makes a British person British or a Chinese person Chinese? It's, it's not just their skin. It's, it, it's the way they think, the way they think about food, the way they think about family, the way they think about the purpose of life, the way they talk, the way they act. It's a whole way of existing. And he says the mindset of earth, the culture of earth, the characteristic of those who are not citizens of heaven is this. They hope, they plan, they aspire, and they desire the things of this earth only. They eat, drink, and be merry because all they've got to look forward to is this life. And it's all meaningless. Getting more and more stuff, getting more and more wealth, the desire for health and wealth and beauty. Even though those things, everyone knows those things are all fleeting in this life even, health and wealth and beauty, right? They're all gone, they're all fading, uh, they'll run out on us. People pursue them though as if they are the ultimate goal, that they are what really matters. And Paul warns them and he warns us not to be like that because he says to live with that mindset is to live as an enemy of the cross of Christ. As I've often told you before, now say it again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says it with tears. Why does he say it with tears? He's not saying this to belittle or mock. He, it hurts him. It hurts because he's worried about them, yeah. But he's also worried about the church, which might become like them, yeah. But also because he's alarmed on Christ's behalf, the one who paid the penalty for the sin, and, and the world hates him paying the penalty for their sin. They live without him and it's no good. They, there are many people who are enemies of Jesus and his cross. And it's not that they're thinking hatred towards the cross, but they live hatred towards the cross. Verse 19 spells it out. He says there's two characteristics of this mindset of this citizenship of earth. 
Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. You see, the God is their stomach at the pubs and on the beaches, the beer guts that testify to the greatest drug addiction in our land, the alcohol. But that's too narrow a view of their God is their stomach. There's the exact reverse, the, the health fanatic who who keeps the stomach as small as possible and worries about it all the time with dieting programs and gym memberships and endless jogging and aerobics and jazzercise. Their, their God's their stomach just as much as the one who's stuffing too much in. Then there's the religious ones who, who teach that you need to be karma-free or the Muslims or the Jews with their fasts and restricted foods. You do eat that and you don't eat that. They think that the way to God is about what you put into your stomach. But Jesus teaches that in Mark chapter 7, what you put into your stomach is just pre-digested sewage. It's nothing more than that. And so if your religion is determined by what you eat, then you can imagine what Jesus thinks of your religion. It's in the toilet. But even that's too narrow a view of their God is their stomach. There's the whole self-worship where, where all of your interests are you. The middle class achievers whose lives are all planned out and they control their progress as they climb the corporate ladder, fulfilling their parents' wishes for their career and the size of their bank account, who are living in opposition to the cross of Christ because they're not interested in the suffering and the shame. They're not interested in throwing it all away for the salvation of other people. Right? They don't care about the salvation of their friends and neighbours. They're only interested in their children getting high marks in the HSC and having everything they ever wanted and being happy. And it's not just the middle class, it's the down and outers too, who, whose lives are all about take, take, take. They're God's their stomach just as much as the others. You see, that's what you're worshipping yourself when your God is your stomach. And he says that's one characteristic. The other one is their glory is in their shame. And you see that in the alcoholics who brag about how much they can put away. Their glory is in their shame. You see it in the boasting of the sexual conquests and the way the tradesmen talk about women and hang centerfolds on their walls. Their glory is in their shame. You see it in the, the Buddhist monk who prides himself in doing nothing and makes a show of his laziness relying on other people to come and bring everything to him, right? thinking he's more holy than them. You see it in the middle class as they brag about their houses and cars and their greed. Or, or in the flaunting of what should not be flaunted in the movie industry. Or in the Mardi Gras, that parade where the whole of Sydney turns out and tunes in to celebrate our nation's degeneracy. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. They live for today, they live for themselves, they live without God. They live as if God hasn't offered a pardon and a relationship with him. They worship themselves in this life and they, they do what they want whether or not God approves because it doesn't matter to him, to them, whether he approves. And the result of this earthly citizenship, what does he say? Their destiny is destruction. That's why the Lord Jesus died because the destiny of people who live like that is destruction. If it wasn't destruction then Jesus needn't have died. His very death shows you how seriously he takes it all. For here is what had to be paid by God in order to buy us back. Our rebellion, our stupidity, our godlessness, he paid for all that. But it also shows why 
Paul has such tears that Christians might never depart from the cross, they might never go back, and why he exalts them the way he does to live as citizens of heaven. And he says, for us whose entry has been paid, who trust him uh, and not ourselves, our citizenship is very, very different now. We have a citizenship somewhere other than the land that we live in. We have a citizenship in heaven. I may live in Australia now, I may live in the best part of Australia, in Sydney, well, in Ingleburn, (laughs) but I become a citizen of heaven. I still live here, but now I have a different mindset, a different lifestyle to take on. I know that you know, the Queenslanders sitting here might disagree that Ingleburn's the best. Uh, uh, you know, they, it's beautiful one day, perfect the next up there, but that's not even really perfect. Heaven's the one that's perfect. And so we've got a different mindset, a different lifestyle to take on. What will it be like, this lifestyle of a citizen of heaven? Well, interesting, it's, it's all got to do with the way that you view time and reality and Easter. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What is the lifestyle of the citizen of heaven? It's riding a bike. That's what it is. Maybe some years since you've ridden a bike. I know Len enjoys a good push bike ride. Uh, In 2008, I got my motorbike license and brought a huge manly motor scooter. (coughs) Um, It was a 250 as well. (laughs) Uh, A lot easier than a push push bike, a lot less effort. Uh, But then COVID came and uh, all of a sudden friends insisted that I accept their gift of a bike and go riding with them. And so I've got a mountain bike and a a road bike now and that's fun but hard work but but whether it's pedal power or motor power one of the key characteristics that's vitally important when you're riding a bike is to always be moving forwards i'll never stay up if i come to a complete halt Uh, in fact the serious bikers amongst our uh, little uh, church community here they've all got the clip in pedal things right and I've been riding with one of them who's fallen off four times in my presence every time they've come to a stop. They've forgotten to put their foot out and boom, down they go. In fact, I find it impossible to stay still on a bike. I wobble a lot, <laughs> very seriously. The essence of staying up on a bike is going forwards. And in fact, the faster you go forwards, the more stable you become. That's the Christian lifestyle. It's, it's going forwards. If you're not going forwards, you're about to fall off. You see, Paul's got a right estimate of the future where he's going to. He's got a right estimate of the present situation he's in. And he's got a right estimate of the past. He's got a right estimate of the future. He says, Christ has taken hold of me for a purpose. That God has called me towards a goal and a prize in heaven. You might think of those passages of scripture like Revelation 21 and 22 that talk about this wonderful future that we have because Jesus has bought us. He said, I've been called to go somewhere else. My destiny, my end is in heaven. That's very important. You've got to keep your eyes on where you're going. Second, he's got a right estimate of the present. At the moment, he says, I've been taken hold of by Christ. He's been called by God, but he's not arrived yet. 
I haven't arrived yet. I'm not already perfect. And looking at me, you'd have to say, far from it. Feel free to ignore anyone who says you can be perfect in this life as a Christian. That's not the way to think. I must never think of myself as having arrived until I get there. I've been called to heaven, I've got a heavenly citizen, but I'm still not there yet. Well, what do I do about my past? Well, I forget it. Forgetting what's behind. Very hard to ride straight on a bike looking back over your shoulder, isn't it? Uh, You're going to hit that gutter and come tumbling off. uh, Next time you see someone on a bike, next time you're on a bike yourself. Remember, that's the Christian lifestyle. It's a race you're on. You look forward and you you pedal hard and you don't look back because you might hit the gutter and go tumbling off. You press on toward the goal. That is normal Christian heavenly citizenship, striving to be heavenly, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, putting on compassion and kindness and gentleness, standing firm in one's spirit without fear from those around. A Christian someone who's called to stand up and say, I don't care about being unpopular. This is the truth and you need to know it. This is the truth and I'm telling you. This is the truth and I'm living it out. And the key, I think, is that we do it in a united fashion together. That's heavenly citizenship. It's no good just thinking about pressing on in the big bad world out there uh, where God where God wants me to start is caring for the person beside me now, my Christian brother or sister, taking on the values of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. But it doesn't just happen automatically. You've got to take them on. You've got to work at it. And sometimes that work that we need to do on ourselves is painful, it's hard, it's difficult. It involves facing your own failings, admitting them to God. It means working on them and resolution. It might mean accountability, seeking to change, seeking his help, relying on his grace and his power to do it over time. Uh, It involves making apologies to people we've hurt. It means making restitution. It means facing the demons that we might not want to face and the skeletons in the closet and dealing with them. Um, Or rather, it means relying on the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with all those things. Being perfect doesn't make you a Christian. Falling in sin doesn't make you not a Christian. A Christian is not someone who's arrived yet. A Christian is someone who's making progress. And we need to make deliberate, active progress as we press on. Are you making progress? What policy decisions are you making? What resolutions are you taking to be godly? Have you kind of said, you know what, I need to be around other Christians in church all the time because they're the only people who care about me going forward as a believer and making it to heaven. The rest of the world is just cheering me not going there. The question is not, have I arrived yet? It's not, have I arrived at the perfect five-hour quiet time every morning? Such a person is basically a pain in the neck. Uh, (laughs) The question is, am I making progress in godliness consistent with the heaven that I've become a citizen of and the character of God who has paid such a great price to set his enemy free and become such a citizenship? He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies 
that they'll be like his glorious body. We'll never have arrived until the Lord Jesus Christ arrives. But till then, my existence here will not be transformed completely. I'll be in the same sick, weary, fattening, greying, wrinkling body until I go to the grave. But when Christ returns, my body's going to be something really worth looking at. And you think turning this, this body into something really good is going to be a miracle. Well, turning me into something like Christ is an even bigger miracle. And so what I've got to be doing now is waiting. Pressing on, making progress for sure, but more importantly, waiting. Waiting for my Lord and Saviour to come and claim me for his home in the new creation, in the new heavens and new earth, in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Claim me as part of his beautiful bride. The mark of the genuinely Christian person is that they look eagerly for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That day is set and we long for that day when he finally comes and will finally be what we've always wanted to be and long for, citizens of heaven. Not just a, a colony in a foreign land, out on holidays, touring around as aliens and strangers, but there with him at home. One of the great things about being here today on this Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, is that um, you should go home very clear what kind of citizen you are, where you stand. Are you a citizen of earth with your mindset on earth to be that's an enemy of the cross of Christ? For your God's your stomach? Or are you a citizen of heaven? Forgiven? Bought at a price? Transform, being transformed, looking forward to being with your heavenly king. Which are you? Have you come to an end of your own self and thrown in your lot with Jesus, the one who died for you, who lives again, the one who's king, saviour, the one who's the judge? God's given proof that there's a judgment day and that this Jesus will be that judge. He's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. And it just might be that you've come to the shocking realisation this morning that you're on the wrong side. But if you've come to that realisation, it's not too late to change. That's a good realisation to come to because the offer's there for you to become a citizen of heaven, get a new passport, right, stamped by God. The offer's there for you to become a citizen of heaven and know the eternity and assurance and the love of God. And know the forgiveness and life that he's offering. It's all free in Jesus Christ. The one who died for you to set you free. And so come to him. Give yourself to him. Repent and turn to him. He'll never let you down. He never will. He's alive. He has conquered death. He is the king. Our Father, we want to praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, paying for our sins, and his resurrection. Father, I don't know where we all stand with you at this point, but Father, we turn to you. Thank you for your mercy and love and that forgiveness and life is free. But help us to take on that mindset, not of earth, but of heaven, of looking forward to you coming, looking forward to your kingdom and wanting to take on your character your righteousness, to seek your kingdom. We pray that you'll do this mighty work in us. And we thank you that it will be complete one day 
in your timing when you call us to be with you. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name, in whom we pray.